Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 261. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 261 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer Dave Gardner, who is a part of Infrasonic Sound and the Infrasonic Sound family that includes former WCA guest Pete Lyman, Piper Payne, as well as Daniel Bacigalupi. Dave runs the Los Angeles end of Infrasonic, and he is located in Echo Park, in Los Angeles, his mastering and his producing credits include people like Sun Ra, Rocket from the Crypt, Les Paul, Louis Armstrong, Portugal the Man, The Hold Steady, Black Lips, Hot Snakes, and many, many others. So looking forward to having Dave on. Dave Gardner coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about marketing yourself as an audio professional. Recently, I redid my website. It had been a couple of years since uh, my buddy Chris Salim from Mixdown Online helped me out with a site, and I just thought it was time for a refresh, and I just did it on my own. Went over to Wix. They're not sponsoring the show, but I just I went over there and was like, oh, I've heard of this company. I'll just try it out. And within a couple of days, I had pretty much the whole thing almost done, and then I tweaked it. The thing that caused me to tweak it was an article by a former WCA guest, Sarah Carter, who I'll link to the article in the show notes of, for today. But Sarah posted something on LinkedIn, nine reasons why your studio website isn't bringing you new clients and making you money. And it was posted over on Production Expert, our friends over at Production Expert. And so I had a, a read and man, really informative. Definitely encourage you to check it out. Maybe take a look at your own website, make sure that it meets some of the standards that Sarah is laying out here. I think it's really, um, really important stuff. And so I, you know, in spite of the fact that I had a website pulled together pretty quick, I made some tweaks based on Sarah's recommendations and I'm really happy with the results. You know, you got your website, you got your social media stuff, your um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, I guess LinkedIn is, is social media technically. And that's where I hang out quite a bit. Although I do have accounts in those other areas. But as many of you know, I'm not telling you anything new here. You do know that, you know, having consistent uh, branding and messaging is important and it may not be on your radar and it may be something that you just think, well, I, I operate on word of mouth, which I totally get. And I think we all can agree that word of mouth is super powerful, but it's good to let others know what's going on. So the word of mouth can continue to spread and we're currently working in a point in time where home studios are growing like crazy, right? And bigger studios are closing. Now, bigger studios still exist and they're out there and they're important, but home studios are increasing at a rapid rate because of course, we all know the technology is less expensive and we can easily set up a mix and mastering room at our home. And if we have space to record people, you could do that. It's not out of the realm of possibilities. And the results just depend on the experience of the person involved. So we're all in our own little bubbles and we spend an increasing amount of time online on social media. 
It's important to get the message out there about what you're doing so that the artists who themselves are working in home studios, their own home studios and others' home studios, know where they can find you and what you bring to the table. So for some of you, I know that the idea of spending your time and your effort when you're making records, maybe you're too busy making records and, and you've got a good problem, but it's definitely something you want to pay attention to. Don't be a curmudgeon. Don't don't say, oh, I don't need that shit, because you sound like an old person. You'll you'll get one of the uh, the younger people saying, okay, boomer. That's what I'm hearing from my 13-year-old these days. So pay attention to it. Uh, it may not be top of mind for you, but I'm here to remind you, make it top of mind. If you want to stay relevant, you want to stay seen, I'm not saying that you have to take a super deep dive, but it's important to be present. Post here and there and uh, make sure that your, your website is up and running and that you've got some examples up there, maybe some testimonials from the people you've worked with and a way to get in touch. And it doesn't have to be fancy. You can use any of those services out there, Squarespace or Wix or any of that stuff and pull together a website that gets the message across and lets people know where you're at. Also, you know, for those of you that are a little more active in the scene, you know, try to get out there and, and be at trade shows, be on panels. That's something I've always really worked hard on is just to, to be out there, to get out of the house, essentially, to go see shows, to go to events, to, to, to do all this stuff. And I don't do it all, all the time, believe me. I'm no different than a lot of you out there who honestly would rather just stay home on a Friday night and watch the new episode of The Mandalorian, right? I get it, but you gotta get out. You can make time for on-demand shows on demand, right? But when an event happens, it's, it's happening like old school television happened. It's, it's going to be on, and if you don't catch it, you're going to miss it. So figure out at the top of the year, as, as we round out the year 2019, figure out what's happening in 2020 from a conference perspective, from a show perspective. If there's bands you want to see and you want to connect with them, plan ahead and uh, get out there and bring your business cards. I know that's a total like old school thing, but seriously, bring some business cards so that you know, in a short conversation, you're not going to be able to have a, a long-term conversation with a lot of people that you're going to see at shows, uh, potential bands. You know, they're being pulled in all directions. So to have a quick conversation to say, I'm so-and-so, here's my card. Uh, I really would like to work with you. Please get in touch and let's see what we can put together. So having a business card, I think, is important. There's a lot of tools out there that we've got available to us that are low cost or free. Social media, obviously, is the main one out there. A website does not have to cost you a bunch. I think I paid six bucks a month for a three-year package or something like that. Six bucks a month. Come on, that's nothing. Really, in, in the scheme of all the subscriptions that we all have, that's nothing. So get on your social media, get your business cards, get your website, at a minimum, get those things. And uh, let people know what you're up to. Let them know you're available. Every time a record comes out that you're working on, if you're working in music, post about it. You know, support the artists that you're working with and uh, let people hear your work. Obviously, if you're working with people that you're not proud of, you know, that that's another conversation. And maybe you don't want to post those records. But when a record does come out, whether it's a d download or a vinyl or whatever it is, let everybody know. If you got a game you've worked on, let people know. If there's a film you worked on, let people know. Former WCA guest Billy Decker, if you recall in my conversation with him, he said, you know, I use Facebook for bragging on my 
kids and bragging on my career. He stays out of the political fray and, and you know, the heated arguments with past uh, uh, high school buddies, and instead worries about posting about his kids and his career. So, food for thought, think it through. Obviously, this is my opinion. And you know how I feel about that. It's just my opinion. But consider what I'm saying. If you're doing these things, great. If you haven't done them and you're slow to come to the table, that's okay too. But really consider doing it. And if you're just like, no, I'm going to dig my heels in, Matt. I'm not doing that shit. I've got plenty of work. Well, that's one way to do it. All right, that said, thanks for hearing me out. Drink more coffee. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Dave Gardner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you, and, and thanks for making time for me here. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here chatting with you. 
I'm armed with a six ounce cup of coffee. I'm ready to arm wrestle. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I've, I've got a couple shots of espresso. I'm going to put some bubbly water in it and I'm ready to go. Where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was actually born in Northern California and I grew up a little bit in Northern New Jersey, which is where my father's family is from. My mom's family is actually from the UK. In 1978, my dad took a job in Pittsburgh. We moved to Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh from 78 through 89. And then I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota at a school called McAllister College. I went there to study history and primarily history. I thought I was going to be there for about nine months and then I was going to transfer back to the East Coast to play hockey. And I was supposed to go to Minnesota and play like a year of juniors and kind of get ready for I had some opportunities to play hockey some places. And then I, I got to Minnesota and realized that I actually did need to keep playing hockey. I wasn't going to be playing. It was that sort of realization like, oh, this is real hockey. <laughs> and then I wound up really liking the Twin Cities and I really liked McAllister and my focus shifted to urban planning and formation of industrial America and migration patterns between the world wars, both immigration to this country and then also migration regionally, especially of African-American folks from the South to the urban North. While I was at McAllister, I got really involved in college radio. I ran the college radio station, and that was where I started doing audio stuff, was recording live to two-track on a Studer. I was at a B77, I think it was a B77 quarter-inch machine, mm. and kind of fell in love with the whole process, started playing in bands, and man... 20 some odd years later, here I am. It all starts with the college radio station. It really does, man. Boy, if I have to think of one thing that's had just over and over impact on my life, it is public radio and specifically college radio, specifically low wattage college radio. Yeah, it's funny because it's a place where one can not only meet other music lovers, but get exposure to music you've never heard, get exposure to some audio techniques, some audio concepts. It all kind of comes together at the college radio station for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing experience. And it was an interesting time because it was the George H.W. Bush administration when they were really aggressively trying to limit access to low wattage public radio. I had to defend a FCC license renewal for a 10 watt station. It's an interesting time. That's an angle that... I don't think any of my guests who have worked in college radio have had to deal with. That's because I'm old, Matt. I'm old. <laughs> have you ever been a recording engineer? So I was initially focused on live to do track recording. And then when I graduated from McAllister, I had basically an urban planning degree. I was planning on going to a program at the University of Illinois in Chicago, which is a dual PhD master's program, which is architecture and planning. And then... I wasn't ready to do that straight out of college, so I took a year off. I had worked for the city of St. Paul, and I was working for the city of Minneapolis in their planning and zoning departments, and I came to the realization that it wasn't for me. It's something that I care a lot about. I still care really passionately about it, but that I saw the way that planning fit into political situations in this country, and it just I just couldn't do it. So I had inherited a little bit of money when my grandmother passed away. I was working this job. The only real job skill I had, or it seemed at that time, was my cartography skills from urban planning. So I actually got a job writing the maps that huge fertilizer spreaders use 
And I was so miserable that I was like, well, the band I was in had just recorded actually with Tommy Roberts, now Zvex of Pedals fame. And he had encouraged me to get into recording. And so I started buying gear, bought a Fostex E16 through the classifieds from Kelly Keegee, the drummer of Night Ranger. So I got a Fostex machine, started making my own record, started making other folks' records. I was pretty active in like the Minneapolis punk rock stuff. So I started doing a lot of punk rock records. And then a label called Amphetamine Reptile, which is based out of Minneapolis, like kind of a noise label. Tom Hazelmeyer, the guy who owns the label, had been thinking about signing a band whose record I'd done. He parted ways. They actually had a studio. They had just left Atlantic and they had a studio in their building. And he called me and I came actually to look at their Ampex tape machine, wasn't really interested in the machine. And they called me back and he was like, hey, do you want to be our engineer and run the studio? And so I dove in and did that. And yeah, got to dive head first into making records. And I did that from 1996 to in 1998, I joined a band called the Selby Tigers that was on a label called Hopeless out here in LA. And we were on tour a lot. So I started, you know, we'd get off tour, I'd work. And then towards the end of my time at AMREP, Tom had been dissatisfied with how masters were coming back. Mm. So he asked me to go sit in on a mastering session on a record. And I sat down and, you know, and I was like, 20 whatever and I felt like my boss had just paid me to go in and sort of like protect the integrity of this recording and I got in there and the guy started making really drastic and aesthetically unnecessary decisions about the low-end content so I said hey that's actually intentional this isn't supposed to be super scooped they want a lot of that low-end's intentional the guy kind of threw a minor fit and this was in Minneapolis he's like well then do you want to do it it's like well that's what I'm paying paid here to do. So I guess if you want to move out of the way and that's what you want me to do, then I'll do it. And so I proceeded to sit at his analog chain. And yeah, I mean, the kind of thing that's like, somebody did that to me. A, I don't think I'd put somebody in that situation, but B, you know, we went through and did the record and then I left. And then the next morning he called me up and asked me, hey, on weekends, would you want to pick up some gigs? Do you want to do this? It was something I was interested in. So I started to migrate into mastering. And then in about 2001, I really decided that I wanted to start moving towards mastering full time. And so I did the second Hold Steady record was one of the last records that I sort of produced. I went out to New York. We did that record separation Sunday, came back and I've done a handful of records since then. I just produced a record for this band from San Diego called Schizophonics this year. I work with a guy named John Reese, who's the main person in Rocket from the Crypt and Drive Like Jehu and Hot Snakes. Oh, yeah. And I've, you know, I engineered the last Rocket from the Crypt LP, and uh, John and I worked together. I master all his stuff. So, not completely retired, but I moved pretty full into mastering in 2002 and opened a facility called Magneto in Minneapolis. Is there something about that you recognize in your own personality and your own ways of doing things that drew you to mastering? Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, like my academic background was sort of a, a critical thinking and analysis background. I mean, I think if you think about urban planning and the part of history that interests me, which is really trying to look back at sort of people and their processes and sort of look to, okay, what is the context that around this? And for recording, I felt like 
I had a gift for when stuff clicked and I was really interested in sort of unusual miking techniques and taking stuff that had been used not so much in punk rock recordings. And my experiences being in the studio had been such that I was like, I felt people were dismissive, especially in like 1990 of people making punk rock. I can only imagine what it was like for folks making hip hop at that time to go into a studio. It was mostly older, mostly white, mostly male who sort of were really dismissive of things that did not seem to completely wrap their arms about around majority culture. And I thought I was good at that. I was good at keeping sessions like that, but I, I, I didn't think I was a particularly flexible recording engineer or producer, if that makes sense. I felt mm-hmm. like I was really strong at vibe and like really organic recording processes. And I was, I stayed on tape pretty much for my entire career as a recording engineer. But mastering really felt to me like I could separate and look at it from like a context and and critical analysis function. And so it it just felt like it synced with where academically I found my strength. I've been presented with material that's in front of me in clear communication with the client. There's a decision on this is where we're at. This is where we want to get to. And so using a contextual path, what's the best way to get there? I think that that has served me well. And that's the way that I approach mastering is that I look at myself as sort of a contextual facilitator that obviously I have aesthetic. We all have subjective aesthetic ideas. And I think the idea of transparency in audio is kind of a fallacy. It's like when you look through glass, you know, you're looking through glass. I mean, we know (laughs) that we're, we know we're taking something that's real and altering it. You just try and do it in either the most neutral or flattering or like respectful way. And so that really clicked for me with mastering. And as a producer, I'd had a couple of really positive mastering experiences and I'd had some really not positive mastering experiences. And, and they kind of reminded me of the experiences I had in the studio when I first started, where it was like the dude behind the glass telling you that they were going to fix it in the mix. And as a bass player, I'd come in and be like, hey, I don't hear any of the amp in there and the amp's distorted for a reason. The bass is meant to be distorted. We're shifting the, the emphasis on the bass above the kick drum. And, oh, we'll fix that later. We'll fix that later. And then it wouldn't get fixed later. And it's like, okay, you want super clean DI bass. That's not what we want, but that's what you're going to give me. And it just felt like a power dynamic. Instead of facilitating what the artist's vision was, it was sort of like caught up in who this person thought they were and what maybe they wanted to be doing, which was being an artist, but instead they were a technician. And then I found that almost doubly reflected in mastering. I find it interesting that so many audio professionals in general, before they become audio professionals, their transition into being an audio professional is born out of a bad experience with others. Bad mastering engineers, bad recording engineers, they get into it to solve the problems on their own. Yeah, I think it makes sense to me, especially as the technology becomes more accessible and those experiences become more accessible. It was just like, I'm a punk rock dude who played sports growing up. So that's kind of a a little bit of a dichotomy, but I grew up like, I don't like to be told what to do, man, but I didn't. (laughs) And I just remember there was one particular recording session that I was in that this dude was talking to me like my fucking high school soccer coach who would like call us ladies. And it's like, oh, now you got me. You're going to motivate me to do what you want to do by somehow implying 
some gender dynamic in an incredibly like simple way is going to motivate me. And all that did was just be like, fuck you, dude. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I, I remember specifically like sitting and looking through the glass at a control room at this project studio while this guy talked to us like he was my high school soccer coach. And I was just like, I'm paying this motherfucker. I am paying out of my pocket. I'm not paying to be spoken to like this. And you can be respectful and recording sessions can get tense. And there'll be times that you lose clients and you gain clients, but you always treat people with respect. And I think there was a real period of time, especially in that transition technologically from the 1980s into the early 2000s, where, man, there were just older dudes making records who were angry and I don't know if they were like scared. If I was having that as a white kid playing punk rock, I can't imagine what it was like for like women and people of color at that time, like doing hip hop. I've often thought about like, man, what was it like to go into a studio if I was like a person of color making hip hop to the dudes who were recording records or the guys who walked in off the street, at least in the Midwest, they were not open for the most part to being exposed to new ideas. Yeah. You know? But it is funny. I feel like that still trickles through. I think it's getting less so as I hope that the people making records and finishing records becomes more diverse. I think those experiences, hopefully, I'm a lefty. I believe that the, <laughs> the, the more time we spend with folks who are not like us, the better the world becomes. So. Well, so how did you eventually transition to Los Angeles? You, you ran Magneto in, in Minneapolis, right? I did. I ran Manny, Magneto in Minneapolis from, I think we opened in 2001, 2002 to 2015. And then in, in 2013, along the line, I worked on a lot of great records. I was really fortunate. I just, the studio I'd been in, I lost my lease. And mm. my wife and I kind of, my wife's from South Dakota, I had lived in Minnesota for 26 years. I moved there thinking I was going to be there for nine years. I love Minneapolis. Minneapolis is an amazing place. Culturally, it's unbelievably rich. I got to work on fantastic records. But by 2015, a lot of my clients were not in Minneapolis. So I was already working long distance. And I just felt like I really needed a, a scene change. So I started looking around at options. Um, I really love the West Coast. I had friends here. And Pete Lyman, who is the other, one of the other main engineers at Infrasonic and the owner, and I had this weird parallel life where like, we didn't know each other, but we had all these sort of like people in common and we worked on similar things. And we have sort of a similar approach to mastering. And we had a mutual friend in common and Pete mentioned that they were looking for another engineer and asked Alex if Alex knew anybody. And Alex was like, you know, I just talked to somebody two days ago who is looking around. And I'd, I'd had some other opportunities to leave the Twin Cities, but it never really felt like the right fit. But mm -hmm. with Pete and here at Infrasonic, it just really clicked. So moved out here in December of 2015. I joined Infrasonic and now I'm the LA guy and everybody else is in Nashville. Was it culturally uh, challenging to go from Minneapolis to Los Angeles? Mm, I don't think so. We'd been in Minneapolis for so long and it was an adjustment, but I always have loved Los Angeles. I used to come out here a lot as a kid. I obviously came out here to put shows a ton and I'm not one of those people who disliked LA. I've always liked LA. I thought about moving here in 2003 under different circumstances, but for a wide variety of, of reasons, it, it didn't make sense. 
So Infrasonic Studios is in a neighborhood called Echo Park, right on the edge of downtown LA. I really like, for folks who are not familiar with LA, I think the LA that people picture is more of the sort of like west side by the beach and like Orange County and Hollywood. Where the studio is, is what used to be really called East LA. And obviously with gentrification and the shift, East LA has kind of moved further east. But I really like the east side and I feel like culturally, I, like I said, I really miss my wife's family in Minneapolis. I really miss our friends, but community-wise and just work-wise, I went from being nobody understood. I'd be at like a teacher's thing at my kid's preschool in Minneapolis. People would be like, what do you do exactly? Oh, I work with records, et cetera, et cetera. We moved to LA and the first week at my daughter's kindergarten, there's three other parents who are audio professionals in, <laughs> and we're walking to elementary school. Yeah, so it's it's a difference. I really love it here. There are a lot of challenges to Los Angeles, but I, I love it. I love it culturally. I love it artistically. I love the art scene here. And I really love East LA or the Eastern part of LA. Technically, I live in Northeast. Is the, the room that you work out of, is that the room that's above Vintage King? It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. It is what we still have the PMCs. So we're, you know, we run PMCs in all our rooms. Yeah. It's the room right above VK. Okay. You ran Magneto for a, a good amount of time. What are the differences in whether it's clients or business? What, what have you experienced now that you've had time to compare? as far as like clients attending, clients not attending? It's sort of happened over an evolution of more mastering fits and the record industry in general, right? It just technologically and also how things work. When I started Magneto, I was on Sonic Solutions system and it was all analog signal processing. And while some people loved Sonic's EQ, I was not one of them. All you did in the DAW was capture, sequence, and create a master. I had been very focused on specific, and I, I really built my signal path, and I still kind of adhere to it, with kind of a, a two-path approach. One is as neutral as possible. So if somebody comes to me and it's like, I'm really happy with how it is. We've just got some stuff we got to clean up, right? So that you are able to do the processing you need to do with doing the least harm. And then I have a secondary path that is very cold. And then that's that if we want to try and shift things creatively, you have sort of a broad palette. And I try and keep those things somewhat bifurcated. So it's like a path A, path B. And those paths, when I built Magneto, were entirely analog, right? Like different converters choices, different gear choices. I very much ran sort of an AB system. I was an early migrator to Merging's Pyramid system, which is the old developed by the folks who developed the Nagra D in Switzerland. And I've been a Pyramix user, man, I don't know, long time. The thing that's great about Pyramix is that it has a built-in monitor controller internally. So I can do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, direct comparisons. I can switch the digital streams inside of the DAW. And I can, when I build a session, I have the raw mix, if I'm doing some digital processing on the way out through the gear, I can listen to that stage, capture back through the converters and the analog gear, and then I can also listen to it once any sort of final digital limiting and digital processing. So I can hear all the way through, and then I can also quickly compare to reference material or other mixes. And that's crazy, right? In 2019, I can sit that, I can send high-resolution masters off to people. Attended sessions happen very rarely. In 2002, 
attended sessions were really the, the standard, you know, mm-hmm. because people couldn't go home and listen. A lot of stuff was getting mixed on DAT at that time. Certainly very few people had DAT machines at home. So most of my sessions were attended except for when I started to get a lot of work from outside of Minneapolis and then they weren't attended. And then it was, you sent off CDR refs via FedEx, somebody listened to it, <laughs> then they got your feedback. The biggest change that I feel like I've seen since I started, I started making recordings in 1990 and I made my first commercially available recording, I guess in 93. I ran a record label from 89 to 92 that was all vinyl. But it's just that the accessibility and the ability for people to reference things anywhere and just the tools that the real advances in digital audio have brought. And they both democratized things and I think also made it really cloudy. When I look back on where I was at in 2002 to where I'm at now, I think that's the big thing is like it's less face-to-face client interaction, but in some ways more communication and it feels more collaborative. I feel like that ability for people to listen and trust on systems they know Mm-hmm. versus making decisions on a system that they don't know. And then there's often a real, like a corrective provision on that. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I have to say, I master, but when I mix, I always send out to an outside mastering engineer. And in the days of old, there was, to me, a tremendous amount of pressure to you bring the mixes to the mastering engineer you sit there it's an attended session it all happens so like right then and there it's like going to the doctor and getting kind of like outpatient surgery or something whereas compared to these days with sending off mixes to mastering engineers and waiting for it to come back is a much more relaxed thing but what do you think are the factors that are attributed to people not attending mastering sessions? Is it, is it an interest thing or is it, is it a cultural thing or a generational thing? I think it's a little bit of a generational thing. And I think that one thing I will say is it's, it's a cost thing because when I have a client in here, things are going to move at least at half speed, maybe even slower because we work really fast when we're mastering. And the other thing that I find is the way that mastering engineers listen, it's often strange. Like we're doing a lot of sweeping at super tight cues. And I used to actually, when I did have a lot of attended sessions, I would encourage folks to like, hey, let's get this started. Why don't you go out in the lounge, come back in in 20 minutes. Because what I found is that when I'd be doing my work, it would throw off whatever reference was already kind of weird and was completely thrown off. Because people would hear you just like sweeping stuff, looking for like resonant frequencies. And then your brain quickly adjusts to hearing really odd and band limited audio. And then when you hear everything else, you're like, now I can't tell. Now everything sounds really dark. Like if I'm sweeping to look for where I want to add top or like cut some sibilant stuff that seems harsh, just the process of doing that complicates things. I think that now people work at home a lot and they 
are an environment, a listening environment that they trust, I think it kind of works best for everybody for people to listen on systems that they know. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing. And I think also being at a facility like Infrasonic in Los Angeles, LA clients attend. I mentioned earlier, I, I produced that second hold steady record. I've mastered the majority of the Hold Stays catalog. Craig, the main songwriter, I've been friends since 1989. When he's in LA, he and I will work on some stuff together. He'll try and time a trip. He's done a couple of really cool solo records. And while they were about two thirds of the way through the last record, he was like, hey man, can we come in and listen to the mixes in the room? They were delivering mixes in about three weeks. So he could sit down and just do like a quick test work. I just think the world is a really different place. I mean, when I started mastering, I didn't have a cell phone, which seems crazy, right? <laughs> I know. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I really just think it's communication and and what's changed with listening. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you, have you had any mentors in the past that had a really dramatic effect on you that to this day you look back, you can say, oh yeah, this person or this person? You know, I, I probably... Zvex, my college band recorded an album with him when he was a recording engineer and he was incredibly supportive and he obviously he's gone on to make these insane pedals but at that time it was a really interesting combination both creative guidance and then a, a real interest in in signal change mm. and that i think had a huge impact on me but I mean, what was weird was being a mastering engineer in a place like Minneapolis in the 1990s and 2000s, there weren't older mastering engineers. There was a, a wonderful guy by the name of David Sarzer, who was a Toscanini's engineer and did a lot of amazing audio design and recording for NBC. And in order to keep the Ampex MM1100 at AMREP going, those machines are notoriously finicky. And this is like early internet days, like 1990s. So there was an Ampex tape machine user group, which was an email group. And there were a lot of guys on that user group who had made records in what I consider to be, I mean, everybody's making great records at all times. But when you hear incredible recordings from the 1940s through the 1970s, I think that the level of creativity mixed with sort of like technical expertise is just stunning. And so and David was really kind to me. And uh, I was really interested in some classical recording techniques that I was applying to recording insanely loud guitars. But he took time via email from his house in Long Island to discuss my techniques they did for the NBC radio orchestra. And that is just sort of like heart and humility mixed with a very clear awareness of the signal chain had a really huge impact on me. Those two experiences early on in my career had a had real significant impact in, on me. As far as from a business perspective and a financial perspective, for, first of all, let's, let's address survival. Right. How has surviving as a parent, first of all, being an audio professional, Ben? It's challenging, man. I think that everybody who's an audio professional, I don't know what your schedule used to be like, but my wife and I met 14 years ago and she talks about what my schedule was like when we started dating. Mm. And it was nuts. You know, the way that I would get up between 10 and 11, get to the studio around noon. I'd work from about one till nine. Then I would go have dinner and ironically at this bar and restaurant that my friends, one of them is in a band Dillinger 4 owned. And 
Then I'd have dinner, watch a band, go back to the studio for a couple hours, get home around one or two. And then I'd kind of do stuff around the house until the BBC World Service flipped over to morning edition, at which point I knew it was <laughs> five in the morning and time to go to bed. I just grind it out like that from 1998 to really when my wife got pregnant. And you can't do that and be the parent that you want to be. You make those decisions and it, you know, we can get into all kinds of my feelings about the way that childcare and healthcare in this country is, is handled. But you have to make a decision between who you want to be as a parent. And it comes at the expense of some career stuff. I, it's mm -hmm. just like, I'm going to go coach my daughter's Little League. Yeah. And sometimes that means that I can't take a record off or I can't do the record that day. And sometimes people are understanding and sometimes they aren't. I remember really early on when we moved to Los Angeles, I just hadn't seen my wife at all. Mm. The first couple of months we were here, I was the only one working. She was still looking for a job. We had moved on pretty short notice. We had one car. I just, I was not seeing her very much. And it begins to impact your relationship. So I was like, all right, today, turn on my phone off. Let's just, we both ride motorcycles. Let's just have a day. We'll go for a ride together. I'm not going to answer my phone. So I get back, turn my phone on. It's like 6.30. And I had done a record for a pretty high profile, like legacy artist a year previous before I moved to LA. And it was his assistant saying that I was in LA now and they wanted to do another record. It was somewhat urgent. Could I give a call? So I call at like 6.15, leave a message, get a call the next day. And he's like, oh, sorry, we didn't hear from you by six. So we moved on to our number two. And that stings. But at the same time, it's just a record. There'll be other records. There's not a day that my wife really and I really needed to spend a day together that I can get back. Yeah. I mean, you cannot possibly get every single record out there. Nope. And you just kind of got to accept that. For me, two things I think have helped. I really, really try and facilitate what people want to do. I feel like some master engineers really get off on like sending mixes back and like, this is unworkable. And like, I don't want any processing on it. And it's like, <laughs> I find that attitude incredibly tiresome and counterproductive to what we're doing. The best mix I got last year was so cooked and so loud, but it was so good that on principle, when I opened the session, I was just like, oh man, this is nuts. This is going to be a disaster. And then, nope, just incredibly well done. It's just my job to touch it up a little bit. But if you're not thinking about what do these people want, you know, like I, when I talked to the artist, I was like, okay, this is what you want. Your mix engineer nailed exactly what you want. My job is just to clean it up a little bit. Yeah. And I've tried to really do that. I've tried to treat everything with respect. And even if it's material that artistically might not resonate for me outside of work, mm -hmm. the thing that I still love about mastering that I do think is different from recording for me is that I can put as much care and energy into a record that doesn't resonate for me personally as I can for like the Hot Snakes single that I did last week, where we're talking about like one of my best friends who's also one of the most influential people for me musically. With mastering, it's, it's always important to keep that and know that every job is as important as every other. And that your job is to get people where they want to be, not 
force them to agree with your aesthetic choices. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with you on this, but I will say that my last guest, Ben Bernstein, really left an impression on me in talking about eliminating friction. Yeah for your client. And that that really has resonated with me this past week in a big way. And I think in the world of mastering, I think it actually in general, audio professionals, I think sometimes we suffer from wanting to teach others lessons. Yeah. And that could pertain to loudness in mastering yeah. and the, the temptation to send back and go, no, 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 no. You have to push it down now. You have yeah. to be quiet. So I can make it loud. Yeah. And and to me, that's what we were talking about earlier. I think it's a power dynamic. It's like the, like, without me, you'd be nothing. I literally, literally think there's an abusive element to that. I think it is like emotionally abusive. And I do a lot of the vinyl side of projects. You know, one of the things that Infrasonic I think is known for, and that one of the reasons it was such a good fit for me here is that my entire career has been built around vinyl as a format. Mm. Even when I was doing all those CDs, I didn't own a CD player. I'm not going to get into any sort of like audiophile argument about whether analog audio is superior to digital audio. I'm just going to say that I love LPs. I've always loved LPs. I especially love the 45. I love seven inches. They are my favorite thing on earth. I feel incredibly fortunate to do what I get to do and to make really great sounding records. That's how Pete feels. That's why we're here. That's what drives me. But I think that it becomes this like, you need me. (laughs) Yeah. Like, Actually, nobody needs us anymore, right? I mean, they need us to cut an LP. Like, you can't press send on a file. I mean, you kind of can. But, like, they need us to cut LPs. But we don't need mixing engineers. We don't need mastering engineers. We don't need studios. I mean, you don't need... Nobody needs that. And so I think when people take that dynamic of the you need me out of fear, it's like it gets back to that high school coach thing. And there's an older, very famous engineer that I've done the vinyl side of a number of projects for. And the way that I see him handle things, he always creates a problem Mm. so he can then solve it. And he's so aware of what he's doing that on a project, he's actually indicated to me on on emails that he's just like, this isn't with you. I got to do this. Or like getting into wanting to know about modifications made to the record cards on a lathe and things like that, where it's just like, dude, don't, don't give me that. You're going to decide that the reason that this record has problems is because you want to know whether we've modified the record card in our amplifier electronics. It's like, <laughs> I believe that, that <sighs> I mean, we've, especially like at Infrasonic, we've made very conscientious decisions about what our cutting chain is. We use a specific generation of discrete Neumann electronics with an older Neumann lathe and a modern cutting controller. I'm a firm believer. I love those electronics I have. I like how they sound. I feel like I can tell when things are cut with different generations of electronics. But that's such an incredibly finite degree that to throw something out there is just, it's just a power point. He gets paid a tremendous amount of money and he's got to remind the people who've been working with him since the 1970s and 80s that he's the big boy and that he's running things. I just, I find that insulting and I find it, we're in this weird area of like Trumpian men. I think there's a generation of men who believe that they are like the masters of the universe and it seems so transparently insecure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
It does. But it, it also seems really prevalent. And then what bums me out is when I see younger engineers and audio professionals ape that attitude because they feel like they need to. They need to throw tantrums. They need to like gaslight other people in the process to make themselves look better. I don't think that makes records easier. And, you know, I like the Ben's thing about diminishing friction. That's my goal is people are, especially in 2019, very few people are getting rich off of this. Yeah. We're lucky to work with some who are. They work really hard. They tour a ton, but it's for love. And you got to be respectful of that. And it's communication, compromise, and context. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I was talking with one of my listeners yesterday over video, and we were talking about, he was turning me on to this Buddhist saying, you receive what you give. Mm. And that also struck a chord with me and kind of pertains to the eliminating the friction. Do you think that as mastering engineers, mastering engineers should really go back, those that are doing, uh, exhibiting the behaviors that we're, we're talking about, shouldn't they go back to the original role of the mastering engineer, say at Abbey Road in the old days where they were transfer engineers, where it was their job to get the mix onto the medium that it will be distributed on and not try to impart so much of a, a personality into it? Yes and no. I mean, I, I, a, I think that's a little bit of a myth, okay. but I do think, I do think there was a change, you know, traditionally, and again, this is from like older guys telling me and like Greg Calby telling me specifically that when he was coming up and he told Jack Douglas, they wanted to be a mastering engineer. I think he was an assistant at the time that Jack was like, you mean the old guys down in the closet? And that was, you kind of moved on there. You're always making aesthetic decisions. I mean, yeah. you're always balancing the sort of like physics of it was the aesthetics of it. And I think that there's in general, this idea that we look back nostalgically on the transfer engineer, not applying his, well, I mean, everybody has bias, right? Right. Everybody has bias and there's going to be like, literally speaking of bias, there's going to be a way that that guy sets up his tape machines. There's mm -hmm. going to be like, for example, when Pete and I are cutting on the exact same wave, there are EQ decisions that I will make digitally that I make to my own files that I don't make to other people's files because I feel like it's this thing that I prefer for my own stuff. I'm not even going to pretend it's objective. It's entirely subjective. It's like some stuff that I like to do with EQ, specifically mm. in the side channel, that I feel like it makes things better, but it's, it's a bias I have. 
Yeah. In the same way that as a bass player, I know I'm always going to like a little bit too much low mid. Not quite bottom octave, but between one and 300 hertz, I need to be aware of the fact that my innate bias in mastering is that I like it a little heavy and that you always work within that. And I think that you just trying to be attendant to that is really yeah. important. Recording engineers... I think might suffer from this particular thing a little more than mastering engineers. And I would like you to correct me if you think I'm completely off base on this. Do you suffer from gear lust and try to spend a lot of money on gear that you don't really need? I went through that for sure. Okay. So between 1996 and 2003, I probably owned upwards of 30 pairs of monitors. I just was like cranking through monitors. I think what's tough for folks to remember, and it's hard for me to remember, like there was no internet at that point. I mean, there was, but there wasn't really. And you could sort of talk to people. And so there was no way to kind of like make decisions and bet it. And especially like it was pre-Guitar Center carrying pro gear. So each town had like one pro audio place. My experience with them was that the guys who owned it were racist. And that I'm sure it was different in other places. The other engineer at AMREP was an African-American dude. He's an incredibly successful front of house guy. His resume is astonishing now. And at that time, he was definitely somebody. I remember us going out to the Twin Cities Pro Audio dealer. And he was about to go do, I can't remember if it was a Melvin's or a Tool tour. And so he was buying a rack of gear. And we went in there with literally like 20K ready to spend. And the guy who owned it would not even interact with us. He sort of sent this junior manager over to kind of talk to us while we talked about gear. So we couldn't even really listen to it. I remember like I was buying monitors and I wanted to buy like some compressors and he was buying like a bunch of front of house gear. And we just walked out of there and we're like, well, that was useless and insulting. Wow. And I don't think that was particularly uncommon. And so it was like, what you could do was you could buy gear. I worked in a couple studios. I, you know, I was like, oh, I don't really like these JBLs. I'll try another pair of JBLs. I tried B&Ws. I went through all of these speakers and you were always looking for what is the magic bullet. And then I had a combination of vintage gear. And this is like in the, you know, sort of that early days. And again, you couldn't, you'd sort of like find a little bit of information on it. You were constantly looking for these, this gear that was going to be the magic thing. And then I think about probably like 2011, 2012, I realized tools are tools and they make jobs easier. But in the end, it's really what you hear, how you react to it and the decisions you make. Mm -hmm. And that the tools are complimentary. But man, I did a record that the stuff came from three sources. Mark Ronson produced it. And there was a handful of the tracks. I don't really remember where they were recorded, but they were mixed by whoever his guy is. Sounded amazing. Then there were a handful of tracks that was recorded at a studio filled with vintage gear. Insane vintage gear. Insane fantasy gear, like a Flickinger console and like all of this insane stuff to tape. Should have sounded amazing. And then there were a couple tracks that were done on a tape four track. And I remember the owner of the label calling me personally, which was unusual, and saying, this is a really important record for us. I know it's kind of all over the place. Can you get everything to sound as close to the stuff that Mark was directly involved with as possible? So I went into that thinking like, okay, well, the stuff directly from Mark that he mixed is going to be great. The stuff from this vintage studio is going to be cool. Oh, what am I going to do about this four-track stuff? I get the audio. The four-track stuff is 
great. Takes the EQ really well. Got to be kind of like drastic with it to get it to match. Like the mixes from, God, Flood might even mix. I can't remember who it was, but the stuff from Mark was just insane. I mean, it was just like those mixes you get, you're just like, pull it up, turn the volume up, and you're like, okay, I don't have to do anything with that. And then the majority of the record that was all done on this desert island vintage gear was a nightmare, like an (laughs) absolute nightmare. And that was really eye-opening for me because it was like, I can go back and listen to that record now and I have trouble telling which are the four track stuff and which are the, the stuff that was done through this total fantasy world gear setup. After that, I'm like, okay, well, here is gear. And yeah, I mean, converters make all the difference in the world. Loudspeakers make all the difference in the world. But I think that the thing that really became important for me and also doing, I was a consultant for this British architecture firm that builds studios and acoustical spaces, was that understanding that your space and your loudspeakers that your monitor environment is really, that's the gear that you need to chase. Think about how many times you see people with crazy vintage gear, and then there's like a couple GIK acoustics panels and some foam and a bunch of really reflective surfaces. So I've kind of pulled back from that. And yeah, we all have it. We all have that, like, oh, I've only had this piece of gear. And yeah, I desperately miss an EQ that used to be in LA that Pete owns. That's a challenge to be without, but I have other EQs. You make it work. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dave, we're, we're out of time. Where can people find out more about you? Just infrasonicsound.com. Go to our website. There's a bio. We'll put a link in the show notes for everybody to chase up on you. And of course, for the audience, Pete, of course, and Piper, and Dave are all connected via Infrasonic. So we'll put links in the show notes to Piper and, and Pete as well. So you can get the big Infrasonic picture. They're they yeah. w- well represented on this podcast. Dave, thank you so much. It's great to great to talk to you. I, I've never had a chance to really sit down and talk with you. And I, I, I'm assuming I'll see you at NAMM. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you too. Yeah. You're, there's like a podcast thing you're doing while you're there? That's right. Yeah, we're doing a podcast panel on that Friday morning, 10 to 11. So if you are in the podcasting mindset and you want to come check out what we're doing, come on over there. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. The podcast is great, man. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks again. And we'll talk to you later, Dave. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Matt. Okay. Bye-bye. Dave Gardner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP-UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith with his lovely voice. Word of mouth is key, so spread the word. Tell all of your audio professional friends. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. 
And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 